is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello and welcome to the latest of our summer conversations. Now, you will have heard a fraction of this already on, on the uh, podcast in the Cheerful Person slot, but I want to emphasise it was only a fraction. What ended up happening is this, this span out into a much longer conversation. And after it ended, both Ed and I thought, God, that, that was so compelling so moving so brilliant um we want people to hear the whole thing and that's what this is so you know you you will have only heard a small part of this 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 is so much more and um you know it's it's an incredible person who it's always great to hear from yeah and it's really about the story of his fostering his abandonment and then his, his his situation in the care system and the and the absolute struggle he had to get proper information about what happened to him I mean, it is. I mean, it is an incredibly well compelling and quite heartbreaking story, isn't it? Yeah. So this week's episode is the extraordinary Lem Sisse. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We are going to speak to poet, author. I would say knocking up against national treasure at this stage of your uh, your career, Lem Sisse. Hello. Hello. When you say knocking up to national treasure, you mean like putting my hand up and going, "Can I come in?" sometimes sometimes people take umbrage if you describe them as a national treasure they, they you know, think think you're saying they're a museum piece uh yeah which certainly isn't true of you no i i I, uh, I hope not especially in the present you know if i was a museum piece maybe i would be a statue and maybe i'd be toppled do you know what i mean i don't want that to happen jeff <laughs> so tell us what what's lockdown looked like for you then then uh well you know lockdown it you lock down the phrase came from the prisons right you go under lockdown so it, it's not that user friendly to be honest um I'm, I'm up one day down the next crazy one day sane the next i live alone uh i like that um but it's uh you're pretty much faced with yourself really even zoom meetings you know you just look at yourself don't you <laughs> you know what I mean? The, the, the one time when you're sick of yourself in lockdown, you know, you spend these time looking at yourself when you're talking to people. I want to talk to you about your your memoir, which is uh, it's coming out in paperback in um in a, in a minute. But before that, I used to come and see you back home in Manchester in the early nineties. Yeah, and you you would be uh, you'd get bills where it was you and uh, Carolina Hearn and Frank Sidebottom and Henry Normal who went John on Thompson. to you know create John Thompson who went on to create so much good comedy Johnny Dangerously Johnny who, Dangerously who went on to a band called I, I Am Clute. Um it was this this weird time where um sort of poetry comedy and to some extent music were all converging like what what was what was it that led to that sort of odd scene in manchester at that time well well it's really funny isn't it because the madchester thing happened mid to late 80s and i think it, it had something to do with that uh independent spirit i guess um uh of manchester but it was also to do with the fact manchester had has always had it well, it had, I had, had in my lifetime a kind of spirit about it where the comedians were together with the folk singers, were together with the, um, with, um, with the mime artist, whatever, you know. They, they would all perform together. 
we we were right on the edge of the separation that happened when comedy started to become um, commoditized, and big agencies like Off the Curb. And there's another one as well. I can't remember its name. Avalon. Yeah, Avalon. That's it. Came in. And that actually separated that whole music, poetry and um, music, poetry, music and poetry thing and comedy thing. So we were at the, the end of that, really. And that was a lot of that was down to Henry Normal's kind of forthright thinking. He was always ahead of the game. And Steve Coogan also was in that. I've just done a, made a documentary with Mr. Alan Yentob for Imagine. And Steve's in it, and so's Henry Normal. And th- we talk about that time. Um, I, to be honest, I always felt like the, 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 the outsider, you know. But then we all did. And that's, that's, the, that's the great thing about looking back, isn't it? You can see, you can go, oh, we all felt like we were outsiders. So the, the memoir is My Name Is Why. It, it follows your experience of growing up in the care system in Wigan. Um, can you, for people who maybe uh, haven't uh, read anything about your story, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes. Well, my mum came to this country in the 60s. She gave birth. She was put in a mother and baby home. She didn't want me adopted. She wanted me fostered. The social worker gave me to foster parents and said, treat this as an adoption is yours forever. The foster parents held me uh, for uh, 12 years. The social worker named me after himself illegally. Um, the, the foster parents gave up on the experiment at 12 years of age, put me into children's homes, said they'd never speak to me again. I was held then in five different children's homes until I was 18. I was thrown out then with no reference to anything that had happened to me in the previous 18 years. And I was given my birth certificate. And my birth certificate had my name on it, Lemsisay. And um, that's when I knew something must be wrong. Why was I called Norman for the first 18 years of my life? And I was given letters from my mother pleading for me back. My social worker said to me, somebody did love you. And he gave me letters from my mother pleading for me back in 1960s. I then, only a few years later, came to Manchester and you saw me on stage in Manchester. But as I, as I um, left care, I had no proof or evidence that anything that I've just told you had happened to me. So the fact is, is that this, is, this could be just a made-up story, right? It's actually a lot more bigger than what I've just explained to you. I I fought for 30 years to get my files. And in longer than 30 years, in 2015, I received 18 years worth of files that showed you everything that I've just told you now is true. I, I used any publicity that I got as a poet to take documentary makers, uh, uh, newspaper articles back to my story. And even then it was just, even then it was like a, oh, that's Lem's origin story, you know, he's searching for his ancestors. He's, no, I had my family stolen from me and I was left with nothing. So this was vital to me. When I did Desert Island Discs about, I don't know how many years ago, but when I did it, Kirsty, she got it. She said, you shouldn't be here, should you? I said, no. And she could see what I've been doing all along is trying to lay pebbles into my past because all family is is a group of people proving that each other exists over a lifetime and I had nobody to prove that I existed in my childhood 
there was no point of reference. So finally, I got my files in 2015 from Donna Hall, from the, the woman who runs Wigan, uh, Wigan uh, Social Services. She's a friend now, kind of. And I then took the government to court. That was the first thing I wanted, legal redress. I wanted somebody to, somebody to say, this happened. We are responsible. And I got that. So that took me three years to 2015. It's, it's all in the, in the beginning of the book. And then my job was to write. Now I'm going to write the story. Why, why was that important to you to, to you know, I, I understand that, that need to un- understand and, and make sense of your own story. Why was it important to, to tell it in the form of a memoir? I wanted redress on all fronts. Emotionally, obviously, I needed therapy. <laughs> um, financially. You know, every single birthday of my life, I've had no family. Like, how big is that? Or Christmas. Or Christmas. From the age of 18 years of age, any time I've won an award, no family. In other words, as however, however, whatever I've done, as I've reached, a, a, I, I, have, I have been made aware of what I have not got. I'm not making families out to be a great thing here, by the way. Dysfunction is at the heart of all functioning families. And that's all I wanted. So I wanted redress, but I'm an artist and I've always been a writer. I've always been a poet. I didn't want to write about my story. It's not about my autobiography. I'm a poet by trade and I have been all my life. I travel the world as a writer, etc., etc., and still do. So I wanted artistic redress. You know, this is this, and, and also it's a job as artists to bear witness to what happens in the world. And if that happens to be us, then it's our job to bear witness to that. You know, so I wasn't just the kid banging on about going back to his roots. I wasn't the kid who was, um, you know, using the race card, as often got told uh, in, in, well, you know, in various places. Um, I, I, it was my story. And, I, and, I, and when I received the files, I thought these are supposed to, these files can undermine me. It's like visit, revisiting trauma. But I get therapy for that, so I'm all good. So, so how can these become part of the, the memoir, the flags in the mountainside? Because it's all about words, man. The things that are written us, about us in the files, you know, it's all about language. Um, so I wanted to lean into that. And I realised how unique and rare it is that somebody should have 18 years of records written about them by the government from the moment they were born. You know, so I, I, um, I, it, 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 was a, it, it was a must for me to write this book. I also wanted to show my family, I wanted to say, sorry, to my foster parents, I wanted to say, oh, this is what happened. So you may see me now and think that all of these things are success. You know, you may read about me in the odd, you know, say on Crime Watch or whatever. You, you may you may see me, but but that was never success to me. It, it couldn't be. How could it be? How could I believe in that when when I didn't have any family? So so I wanted them to see what happened to me as a child, and I also spent my adult life using the resources that I got from poetry 
and from live performance and from books and, and the little that I got traveling around the world to find my family and to meet my mothers and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and stuff. So, yeah. And for our, and for our listeners, I mean, tell us about whether you've had contact, you said you said you have had contact with your mother and, and your foster parents. Yeah. Well, you mean since I, since yeah, the book's come since, out or since I've left yeah, care? Yeah, since stuff? it's come out. Yeah, since all of this well, has come out. Well, the book was sent to my foster parents and I think, um, it's undeniable, you know, what happened. It's in, it's there. Um, I think it's it's never easy having a writer in the family. So I think that my... I, well, in fact, I know I'm, my foster parents are not my family in any way. Um, I think it has... I think it maybe has shocked them because they had to tell themselves an untruth... And that was that I left them. You know, the the narrative was he doesn't want us. You know, he's he wants to leave us because and he's rebelling against us and he, he's rebelling against Christianity and you know and so they had to feed that story back to the family and tell them all because because they wouldn't have if 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 if, it, if they hadn't have done that they would have called me they would have called me man they never called me like. Nobody, no auntie, uncle, brothers, sisters, cousins, mother, father, grandparents, church, school, friends. Nobody called me. I left at 12 and I had nothing. And they were, they were telling themselves, they did themselves a favour. They'd saved the poor a black child from Africa. You know, that, that was it. That was their cross that they bore in the Lancashire villages. None of that was true. I was stolen from my mum. But but at the same time, families have to survive themselves. <laughs> That's what this is about. My foster parents, my foster mum and family, they had to survive themselves. In other words, I was the fall guy for the family. And I sometimes wonder whether most families have a fall guy. They have a story. You know, we can't talk about the story we have an idea of what the story is, and actually it's not true, but if enough people in the family believe it, it feels enough to be true so they can move on. Is our crazy uncle really the crazy uncle? Was our, was our mother, you know, was our mother or father, or was our grandfather really mad? What was that story? And whenever you find that in a family, that story will often shed a whole different light on the rest of the family. And that's what my story was. So the question was, was, was I going to go crazy or was I going to find out the truth and never have an artist in the family? <laughs> Not because they're going to, you know, they're going to say, well, I can't help this. And have you made contact with your birth mother? My birth mother, it, you know, it, what's beautiful about that question is it's not an easy relationship, but then... How many of us have got easy relationships with our mothers? Some of us are lucky enough to have, but it's often complex. She called me just before lockdown, just just as as lockdown happened. From she lives in New York, and um, she just wanted to know if I was okay. And um, whenever that happens, it's uh, it's quite an it's quite an incredible thing. We we don't speak a lot, um, but. 
it's not easy for her. She works for the United Nations. She always has. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I mean, what is, I mean, there's so many levels at which what you've written about is remarkable, but uh, one one level is um, uh, it took a, it took so long for you to get access to your records. Yes, that's right. Well, when a, when a, I mean, our, our institutions have got, um, a lot to hide. And, um, I wonder, you know, cause I, I know that there's people who've been looking for the files all over the country. They talk to me. I, I received emails and letters and, uh, uh, letters before the emails, but, um, you know, when a when a when a local council says, "I'm sorry, we can't find the files," uh, most young pe- pe- adults who've been in care will take it on the chin because they're used to people saying, "Sorry, we can't find the evidence that you are you may be you know you may have a a reason to to want to see them." Um, and then you have to go back again. And again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and and uh, I think it's just because they know that if you bring them to court, uh, it goes back to the insurance companies, and um, yeah, and it costs them time and money. So yeah, it took thirty years. I made a BBC documentary in search of my files, BBC Radio Four, called Child of the State. Um, I went to Wigan, they looked for them, they couldn't find them. They said they'd been lost by a company called the Iron Mountain, uh, which is a data company. Uh, It's not lost on me that I was in care in 1984. Um, I mean, it really is not. Um, So I I, I just pursued it and pursued it and pursued it, and I was going to till forever. Um, Yeah. How did you get into becoming a poet then i i knew i was going to be a poet when i was i thought my name was norman mark greenwood when i was um 13 13 years of age um i told my teachers that i was going to be a poet who did you see that made you think because you, you know I, I could look at people on piccadilly radio in manchester and add with with your dad you could look at people yeah. who'd had these political careers like who who did you see that made you think oh i can get from here to here yeah um well i i think it's connected to my foster father being an english teacher and reading lots of books as a child reading the reader's digest i, I was over the moon when my name is why i came out and i got a commission to write to write an article for the reader's digest because i used to read them as a kid um, the Bible, there was a lot of the Bible. My foster family were very religious and the discussions that we would have about what symbols meant in the Bible made me aware that the environment that we're in c- 
can very easily symbolize our inner selves uh, and our inner journeys. And this is, uh, I think it was John Burnside said, metaphor is as close a human being can get to their environment. It's a cracker. It's an absolute cracker. Um, so I went to, when I went into care at 12, the best way I could translate the experience was by writing a poem about it. And I, I, I still have that familial relationship with the act of writing. I then went on to middle school, middle school to comprehensive, uh, and the teachers there were very encouraging. And I, my first book was, first adult book, I mean, adult poetry, was um, The Mersey Beat, The Mersey Sound. Which one is it? I always get the two mixed out up. It was written by the Liverpool... Roger McGough. Yeah, Roger McGough, Brian Patton and Adrian Henry. And on the first page of the first poem in that book, it mentions an orphan or an orphanage. So little little signs like that. My English teacher, bald-headed, beer-drinking, you know, not at school, obviously. Rugby, it was the 70s, not the 80s. Rugby, rugby playing, you know, um, straight after casting for Kez. You know, he, um, he encouraged me. You know, uh, Mr. Runsworth, his name is. And uh, when I became Chancellor at the University of Manchester, I invited him to come down. He said, no, I'm in Spain. <laughs> and how... He's got his priorities I, I, right then. I mean, it's probably a really st- sort of stupid question, but, I mean, wh- when you read what sort of happened to you and the, the way you were sort of ceremoniously, unceremoniously sort of dismissed by your foster family and then what you've said and then going through care and we all know you know what happens to in general to kids who've been in care and where they end up and this is probably a really impossible question for you to answer but how did you manage to sort of survive i mean yeah i think it's a a mixture of things and i'm i'm not even sure i'm not even sure how i became a poet or why i I became a poet and it's i think it's similar as to that But what I can tell you is this. I had no family, like none. Okay? Now that sounds like it's it's a disadvantage, and in many ways it is. But a lot of the young people who were in care, they, when they ran away from the children's home, many of them would run away back to the abusive homes that they had come from. In other words, you know, I had nobody bad to run back to and I had no cycle of emotional violence because I had nobody who cared um, and, and but, but I worked that to my advantage that meant that I could like many young people in my villages in Lancashire they would go out say in the army, they'd go into the army but they would come back to the village and be back in the slot machines. They had no. They were pulled back constantly. When I came to Manchester at aged eighteen, I had nobody to come back to tell me to come back to the villages. This was an advantage. Families are all about invisible boundaries that I think we push. We push them and we we get out of them. Sometimes we feel restricted by them. 
uh, I didn't have the love, but I also didn't have the restrictions that can sometimes come with love. They are the, by the way, they're the best thing. I, I mean, that, that restriction is, you know, I mean, I, I've just read the book, uh, a book by Christopher Eccleston, and uh, just chatting to him yesterday, and just the love that his parents had for him. Um, and they were working class, you know, they had nothing, but they had love, and that's a big deal. Anyway, sorry. I didn't have that, so it meant that I could take my ideas to their fullest conclusion. And you've campaigned for many years on the rights of children in care. I mean, I've campaigned for my... I've tried to find my own story, you know. I I take what you've said, Ed, but I also realise there's so much to be done, and I'm not the one to do it, right? So I can't, you know... There are some great social workers out there. There are some uh, great therapists out there for young people. There's great work being done. But there is also institutional abuse which is happening in the care system. I think the care system now is better, is more aware of itself. I don't mean better than it ever has been. I think my job is to get people on the outside of the care system to be aware that it's all our responsibility to look after the child of the state, which is what a a child in care is. And when you share a story like yours, uh, you've sort of hinted at this, you you will then have a lot of people want to share their stories with you. That's like, I think that must be a very emotionally intense thing to receive those emails or have people coming up to you after, you know, poetry gigs and, and, and share those stories. How, how do you deal with that? Um, well, I, uh, I can't uh, solve anybody else's problems, but I can um, make people proud of the fact that they don't have to hide their story anymore. You know, the idea of being a child in care is that you should be an adult in shame. That somehow it's your fault that you have to carry that for the rest of your life. And I think what I've given maybe is permission to speak. You know, there are parents who've been in care who can't tell their own children. You know, and and they, they, they spend their entire life blocking off their own childhood because they, they're, they're ashamed of sharing it with their own children when it's not their fault. Well, Lem, it's, it's an incredible memoir. My name is Why. It's, uh, it's out in paperback. Everybody's got to buy it. Everybody does. It's, it's, it's an astonishing story. Thank you so much for uh, sharing it with us. And what are you looking forward to doing? Is it getting out of the house? Is it getting out of London? Actually, uh, it, I, I am actually am going to Manchester for the University of Manchester quite soon. Um, I can't tell you what that's about either, and I, because I don't know myself. I think I've got an idea, but I don't know myself. It's all it's all under wraps. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting out. Maybe I've good, I need a holiday. We all need a holiday, right? Well, the Costa, Costa del Salford. Yeah. <laughs> Lem say it's a pleasure to speak to you. Th- thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Ed. Hey. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.